Coming up, it's Philosophy Talk. Repugnant markets. Should everything be for sale? I don't approve of the sale of cigarettes. I don't approve of the sale of sex. Does that mean you shouldn't have the freedom to buy them from a willing vendor? We don't sell Tic Tacs, for Christ's sake. We sell cigarettes. And they're cool and available and addictive. The job is almost done for us. Doesn't our repugnance suggest there's a moral problem? Or maybe it clouds our judgment about what's right and wrong. Isn't repugnance culturally dependent anyway? How does it make sense to find eating dog meat repugnant, but not eating pork? Pigs are filthy animals. I don't eat filthy animals. Man, but bacon tastes good. I ain't eat nothing, I ain't got sense enough to disregard its own feces. Our guest is Nobel laureate Alvin Roth, author of Who Gets What and Why. Repugnant markets. Should everything be for sale? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. What's so bad about buying and selling things like sex or kidneys? Should absolutely everything be for sale? Or are markets in some things too repugnant to even allow? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus where Ken and I teach philosophy. And today we're thinking about repugnant markets and asking, should everything be for sale? Well, obviously not. People shouldn't be for sale. Well, that's the easy case, Deborah, because nobody can own a person. You can't sell what you don't own. But if I can own it, why can't I sell it? Well, you do own your body. Yet in many places, selling sex is prohibited. Well, but the question is, why should it be? Because it's degrading. Oh, that sounds... I don't know, outmoded Puritanism, Deborah. I, I, I must, you surprised me. If two consenting adults, or even more than two consenting adults, want to trade money for sex with each other, whose business is it but theirs? Look, a lot of women go into prostitution because they're desperate. Banning prostitution protects them. Protects them from what? Themselves? No, no, now you're sounding a little paternalistic, Deborah. Oh, come on. From pimps, from exploitation. It's about respecting human dignity. Well, well I'm all for dignity. I'm glad to hear that, Ken. <laughs> well, but but the, my question is, what do our feelings of repugnance have to do, really? What do they tell us about uh, dignity? Well, people have visceral reactions to violations of dignity. And, and you trust those visceral reactions? Uh, come on, people used to find the idea of selling life insurance repugnant, of all things. It put a price in human life and then place a bet on when the life would go, expire. They thought that violated human dignity. And people once found the very idea of interracial marriage or gay sex repugnant. What about that? Well, okay, I grant you, those aversions were irrational, but we've made a lot of progress. Uh, maybe, but the, this idea of progress presumes that our aversions, our patterns of disgust, track moral truth better than their patterns did. Why, why, why should you think that? I think that they do. But why? I mean, come on, take California. The voters of California, their infinite wisdom, a few years ago banned the sale of horse meat for human consumption by a referendum. Why? Well, because eating horses is disgust us and disgust us more than eating cows. Really? Look, I'm not saying we should always trust our visceral reactions, but we shouldn't totally ignore them either. Sometimes they're trying to tell us something morally significant. Maybe, maybe, but you know, the problem is that what seems morally significant to you 
I mean, that seems so morally significant to me. It's so subjective, Deborah. Why should the and, and besides, given that, why should the fact that other people find something degrading, say, like selling sex, determine what I can buy or sell, especially if I don't find it degrading and neither does my economic partner? You know what? It's not just about you, Ken. When you buy a gas-guzzling car or you smoke cigarettes, you impose costs on other people. Oh, okay. I get that point. You're talking about what economists call externalities, right? I mean, harmful harmful effects imposed on third parties who are not involved in some economic transaction. That's precisely what I'm talking about. And I'm saying that when markets impose externalities, we have a right to regulate those markets, or sometimes even to ban them altogether. I get that point, Deborah. I'm not denying that point, but it sounds like you're implying, I don't know if you mean to, that your disgust and my economic choices is an unacceptable externality? I uh, I shouldn't be free to sell my own body parts to a willing uh, buyer because it makes you oh so squeamish? Look, it's not the squeamishness in itself. It's the fact that I feel squeamishness is because of the violation of dignity and justice. Wait, wait a minute. Slow down. Thousands of people languish on waiting lists for kidneys, hoping against hope for a kidney so they don't die. And they're languishing all because people with delicate sensibilities find kidney markets all repugnant. You call that justice, really? Look, is it justice if poor people have to sell their kidneys and only rich people can afford to buy them? Well, maybe some poor people wouldn't be so poor if they could, like, sell their kidneys to the highest bidder. You know what, Ken? That's repugnant. <laughs> kidneys should go to the people who need them the most, not to the people who can pay the most. Look, look, I'm not a worshiper of markets. Anything goes markets. I grant you they need to be well-designed. They need to be well-regulated. But the problem is we can't just let mere squeamishness keep us from even trying to make markets work. Look, I admit that as long as markets don't diminish human dignity, they're important social institutions. They can do good things. Okay, so I think I, think I see a way forward here. So if we could find a way to strike just the right balance between respecting human dignity and letting the market operate efficiently, maybe maybe we could agree. So, so well, how do we do that? You got an idea? Ken, that's a complicated question. And to show us just how complicated, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, who spoke to someone who took a deep dive into the ethics of buying and selling human organs. She files this report. Alexander Berger remembers when he first started thinking hard about inequality in the world. He was a college student taking classes in philosophy and social justice. And I was spending a lot of time thinking about, like, sort of what are my ethical obligations to the world, obligations to the global poor, and what should I do with my career, and how could I have the most positive impact in the world? This kind of thinking led him to certain action. He remembers learning about factory farms and becoming a vegetarian. He also learned about the shortage of organ donations. So even though he didn't know anyone that needed one, he decided to give up one of his kidneys. Part of the way I thought about it was like kind of a, a relatively like easy, cheap way actually to help somebody else. You know, by bearing a one in 3,000 risk to myself, I could really like give somebody else 10 more years of life. His kidney to him was an abstraction, not something he'd miss or even know was gone. Some people have like, feel like much more connected to their bodies than I do. Like I think like Catholic bioethicists like 
feel like there's this like really important like sanctity of the body as a whole that I don't identify with that much. So he decided to do it. He'd undergo a surgery and a reasonable recovery period, and the recipient, a middle school math teacher in rural Pennsylvania, she has two teenage sons, would be able to get off of expensive, debilitating dialysis, and would expect to live decades longer. It was a gift to her and her two children and everyone who loves her. It's beautiful. And yet, every year, fewer than 200 people in the U.S. are like Andrew, altruistic donors, meaning that they donate while they're alive to a stranger. This despite the campaigns to promote donation. I've been waiting 123 days for a heart transplant. 736 days for a heart. I've been waiting for a heart for 500 days. There are tens of thousands of people on the waiting list at any given time. Berger understands that most people don't think about this problem like him. I feel like I'm the weird one and, and the idea that like, I sort of had this like burden of like consistency and of like really thinking things through. I think I kind of recognize that that's not how most people are approaching the world. If there were a legal market for organs, some argue, we'd be able to increase the supply to help meet demand and save lives. But the camp standing in opposition is equally passionate. A donor is a patient. He is not a piece of meat or a piece of Lego. Dr. Gabriel Danovich is a professor of medicine at UCLA and a representative of the Declaration of Istanbul, which calls for the global prohibition of organ trade. That means black markets and even legal ones like Iran's. It's a medical procedure with complications. As a doctor, Danovich says paying for organs compromises his work. It puts doctors in the position of exploiting people who need money. Because while altruistic donors almost always feel good about what they do, basking in what he calls a halo effect, when people give up organs out of financial necessity, he says they experience it as harm. Those who have donated for money uniformly have depression, impaired self-worth, increased incidence of divorce, etc., etc. He believes money also compromises the safety of the procedure. Organs from paid donors, they're much riskier because paid donors, when there's money involved, may not be telling the truth. Meaning they may not disclose their risk factors if it could prevent them from being approved. But most of all, he just doesn't believe it will work. He predicts that legalization wouldn't result in more organs becoming available. Commercial living unrelated donation displaces non-commercial living unrelated donation. It doesn't add to it, it takes away from it. That's because people only give up organs for their loved ones because they have to. When a market is introduced, data shows that people will use that market and opt out of unpaid donation. Though with any of this data, it's hard to compare legal and illegal organ markets in other countries with hypothetical ones in the US. But fundamentally, Danovich says it's cruel and repugnant to decide as a society to exploit the fact that some people have to resort to selling their body parts. If we want to help poor people, he says we should help poor people, not offer them money for their organs. Is that a society we want to live in? That for a poor person in order to pay for their mortgage, is that our response to our society? That because you're foreclosing a house, you're going to sell an organ? That's the argument that counts when it comes to public opinion. But the problem with this argument is it's hard to pin down what makes paid organ donation different from any other paid labor. Almost none of us do what we do for money freely, and plenty of it involves bodily risk. We do it to survive. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Beal. To hear the rest of this program, head to philosophytalk.org. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.